I'm Megan Whitmer, and this is The Ordinary Amazing, a podcast about people throughout history who weren't afraid to fight back. Hello, darlings. Last week, we talked about the wonderful Sojourner Truth, and I heard from so many of you who really enjoyed the first episode, and I am so thankful for all the feedback, and I appreciate all of you that have returned, or maybe you're just finding us. Either way, I'm happy you're here. This week, we're talking about a man who spent his entire life fighting for civil rights and racial equality, W.E.B. Du Bois. Before I get into this story, I wanted to take a minute and say something about some of the language that you're going to hear in this episode. When I'm quoting him directly, there are a few times where I use some language that are just not normally words I would say. I thought about leaving out the quotes, but then it was just, you don't get to know him as well without them. I thought about changing the quotes, but then I felt wrong about changing his words. We need to hear it exactly as he said it. There's no way I can do the delivery as well as he did, but I can at least give you an idea of the context and what he said and what was going on at the time. So I just wanted to say up top, there is some language in this episode that was uncomfortable for me to say, and it may be uncomfortable for you to hear, but it's really important, and I didn't want to leave it out. William Edward Burghardt Du Bois, now you know why he goes by W.E.B., was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868, so that's just after the Civil War, and this was a relatively tolerant, racially integrated area to live in. William's mother, Mary, was part of the free Black population there, and her family had long owned land in Massachusetts. Her great-great-grandfather had been a slave, and he had served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, and they're pretty sure that's how he earned his freedom, which was also passed down to his descendants. William's father left when William was about two years old, and then Mary and her son moved in with her parents, and Mary worked doing whatever she had to do to support her family until she died when William was about 17 years old. William was the first in his family to go to high school, pushed to do so by his mother. Growing up, William attended an integrated public school where he had white classmates and lots of friends. When he got older, he wrote about growing up without a dad in a town where he was a minority. He was a smart, popular kid. His classmates liked him, and his teachers saw something special in him. William was a gifted writer. Having these teachers who believed in him and praised him, it gave him the confidence he needed to believe that he could use his knowledge to empower African Americans. One part of William's story that I think is so beautiful is it shows the impact that teachers have on the children that they teach. William's teachers made him think he could go out there and make a difference. Their belief in him made him believe in himself. William graduated from high school and wound up in Nashville, Tennessee, attending the historically Black Fisk University. Now, up until this point, William had lived in the North, and his college years were his first experience with the South and the festering racism that stained everything down there. This was during the time of Jim Crow laws, a set of laws that lasted about 100 years that legalized segregation. In Tennessee, during William's college years, they required separate schools for white and Black children, Interracial marriage was a felony. Segregation was legal in many businesses and public spaces. And then, of course, there's the lynching, the public killings of Black people simply because they existed, and certain garbage white people thought that they shouldn't. Take a moment and put yourself in William's shoes. Imagine growing up free in an integrated school. Things come easily to you. You've got a lot of friends. Your teachers love you. 
They're constantly praising your intelligence and telling you that you're going to do great things. You graduate high school and you move on to college excited about the opportunities ahead of you. You head down to your new college and suddenly you're treated like you're less human than your white peers. It had to have been incredibly disheartening. William got his bachelor's degree from Fisk and then went on to Harvard. Harvard did not accept any of the course credits from Fisk, I assume because of Fisk's history as a black school. This episode is already exhausting. (laughs) If you wonder why I didn't have an episode up last Monday as I planned, it's because I had to work on this one slowly with lots of breaks. It just weighs on you, you know? Okay, so William worked his butt off to pay for Harvard. He worked summer jobs and earned scholarships and took out loans. He'd gotten a small inheritance and he put that towards school too. And it all paid off when he earned his second bachelor's degree in 1890, a history degree from Harvard. And then he got a scholarship to attend graduate school at Harvard too. Don't try to tell him he's not as smart or as capable as the white kids. As my friend Carrie would say, you can't tell him nothing. In 1892, William was offered a fellowship to attend Friedrich Wilhelm University in Berlin. While he was a graduate student there, he traveled all over Europe, and he wrote this. Again, I'm going to ask you to really put yourself in William's shoes. Don't just hear this like I'm teaching you a class about him. Listen to it and feel it as much as you can, okay? I found myself on the outside of the American world looking in. With me were white folk students, acquaintances, teachers, who viewed the scene with me. They did not always pause to regard me as a curiosity or something subhuman. I was just a man of the somewhat privileged student rank with whom they were glad to meet and talk over the world, particularly the part of the world whence I came. So he's saying, the people over here, they don't treat me like I'm garbage. They don't look at me like I don't deserve to be here. In fact, they treat me like I'm privileged because I'm a student. They treat me like I'm smart, like I'm an equal. It was during this time that William met Max Weber, a German sociologist and political economist who is said to be one of the most important theorists of the development of the modern Western society. He was super impressed with William, and when racists would talk about the inferiority of the Blacks, Max Weber would be like, no, let me tell you about William Du Bois. If you remember in last week's episode, I very briefly touched on Frederick Douglass about how some people made this argument for slavery that slaves weren't smart enough to live independently anyway. And Douglas was incredibly intelligent and well-spoken, and his whole existence really flew in the face of that argument. William Du Bois is much the same. By the way, don't you love how that argument assumes that every white person was intelligent enough to live independently back then? We all know that wasn't the case. I found an article from the New York Times in 1909 that talked about this white guy, John Mumkra. I am very sure I'm mispronouncing that. He laid in bed for 10 years. Was he sick, Megan? No, he was perfectly healthy. He lived on this farm in Illinois that had this rule that everyone had to get up at 5 a.m. And John was like, it is just stupid to get out of bed in the morning when you know you're just going to go to bed again that night. So he stayed in bed all the time. Tell me that guy's intellectually superior just because he's white. A few years before John Mumkra decided simply getting out of bed was too hard, William Du Bois became the first African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard University. William made a name for himself doing sociological research. Through his studies, he began to believe that racial integration was the key to democratic equality. But he wasn't in favor of simply integrating into white society. 
At the time, Frederick Douglass was making a push to have Black Americans sort of make themselves fit in. I don't know any other way to say this, and I know it's a bit of an oversimplification, but Douglas was basically like, just try to be more white. White people will accept you if you act more like them. And Du Bois was like, absolutely not. Here's what he said. We are members of a vast historic race that from the very dawn of creation has slept, but half awakening in the dark forests of its African fatherland. He wanted racial integration, but not in a way that whitewashed their culture. His whole thing was that African-Americans should embrace their African heritage and bring those gifts with them as they contribute to American society. This is the current that runs through William's life in his literary works and his activism. This idea that you can be Black and American. You shouldn't have to sacrifice your unique culture, your Blackness, to fit in. Later, Booker T. Washington makes this argument for Black people to sort of accommodate the wishes of white people in the Atlanta Compromise. That was a deal he struck with the white leaders of the South, where he's like, okay, we, the Southern Blacks, will submit to the discrimination and segregation we're facing right now, and in return, you'll let us receive an education and some economic opportunities. Booker T. Washington was trying to make the best of a bad situation, right? And that's certainly one way of addressing it. But William Du Bois did not want to just accept the idea that Black Americans didn't deserve to have the same rights as white Americans. Here are Du Bois' words from his book, Strivings of the Negro People. Between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question. How does it feel to be a problem? One ever fills his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American, without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. William made the point that Black people suffered from this cycle where they had far less opportunities for education, to own land, to have jobs, to make money. And then these things were held up as examples of why Black people couldn't be treated equally. Like, well, they're not educated. We can't let them vote. So the answer should be, let's educate all of them. Let's give them all the educational opportunities that white people have. Not, you're right. Let's never let them vote. I'm working on another episode in the future about a woman who makes this point too, about women in the 1700s. She's like, you won't educate us and then you call us dumb. You won't let us have independence and then you call us unable to take care of ourselves. This whole thing reminds me of that speech in Ever After. It's that Drew Barrymore Cinderella movie, which is easily top five movies ever, right up there with Tombstone. In the movie, Drew's character says this thing to the prince when he's talking about the lower class people in his kingdom. If you suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners corrupted from infancy and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them, what else is to be concluded, sire, but that you first make thieves and then punish them? But here's the thing. Pitting us against each other benefits those in power, right? For instance, in September 1906, riots broke out in Atlanta after a bunch of unfounded allegations of black men assaulting white women. 
Here's what was really going on. There was a job shortage in Atlanta, and employers were playing black workers against white workers. 10,000 whites went through Atlanta, beating every black person they could find, killing over 25 people. Du Bois wrote an essay after this, A Litany in Atlanta, where he pointed out that the Atlanta Compromise clearly had not worked because the black people were holding up their end of the deal, accepting the segregation and discrimination as simply part of being black, and yet, in the aftermath of the Atlanta riots, there was no legal justice on their behalf. In 1910, William became one of the founding members of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It was William who had suggested that the word colored be used instead of black in order to be more inclusive of dark-skinned people everywhere. Through his role in the NAACP, William created and edited the organization's monthly magazine, which he called The Crisis. Du Bois established himself as a passionate and powerful civil rights leader. He was a big supporter of women's rights and women's suffrage, a theme that shows up often in his writings. But the suffragism leaders refused to support his fight for racial equality, and in return, he refused to publicly endorse women's suffrage. This reminds me of that part from Sojourner Truth's story where we talk about this thinking at the time that slaves were men and women were white. Sojourner Truth was just a strong reminder that among the slaves there were women, and among the women there were blacks. Remember that Atlanta riot that broke out over a job shortage and white workers were being pitted against black workers? A similar riot broke out in East St. Louis in 1917, when white people massacred somewhere between 40 and 250 black people because they were mad that St. Louis industry leaders were hiring black people to replace the striking white workers. Du Bois ran an article in The Crisis with photos and interviews detailing the violence. And then he organized a peaceful protest in New York City, the Silent Parade when 9,000 African-Americans marched down Fifth Avenue to demonstrate their outrage over the riots. This was the first parade of its kind in New York and the second instance of Black people publicly demonstrating for civil rights. So, we're all understanding that William Du Bois was a well-known, well-respected man in the fight for civil rights. He stood up for what he believed in, even if it wasn't quite in line with what other Black civil rights leaders like Douglas and Washington were doing. He wasn't afraid to speak very openly and bluntly about racism. He didn't mind making white people uncomfortable. And that's how, in 1929, William Du Bois found himself in Chicago, headlining what was billed as one of the greatest debates ever held. Between himself and a guy named Lothrop, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I super don't care, Stoddard, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, a proponent of eugenics, and so-called scientific racism. I want to take a minute here and thank Ian Frazier for his 2019 article in The New Yorker about this debate. It's in the show notes. It's a delightful read, not only because it's super informative, but it's also just beautifully snarky, and I want to be his friend. The majority of what I'm about to tell you about this debate comes from that article, but there's so much more that I'm not including, so I hope you take the time to read it. At the debate, the question at hand was this. Shall the Negro be encouraged to seek cultural equality? Has the Negro the same intellectual possibilities as other races? An article in the Chicago Daily News introduced the two men like this. W.E. Bernhardt Du Bois, one of the leading colored workers in the country, and Lothrop Stoddard, Ph.D., lecturer and author on race problems. I'm already mad. William had his Ph.D. then, too. He had written articles and books and performed studies regarding race and civil rights. He was a co-founder of the NAACP, but he's billed 
as a leading colored worker, while the other guy gets to be Lothrop Stoddard, PhD, lecturer and author, whatever. I guess now I should tell you a little more about Lothrop Stoddard, which I will do as long as you all promise to promptly forget his name as soon as this episode ends. He graduated Harvard, just like William, with a degree in history, just like William, and he, like William, was a prolific writer, and that's about the extent of what they had in common. P.S. Don't you find it interesting that in this debate where this white supremacist is arguing that white people are intellectually superior to black people, he graduated from the same school as the black guy he's arguing with? It's like rain on your wedding day, a free ride when you've already paid, or the good advice that you just didn't take, or any of the other things that Alanis Morissette sings about that aren't actually great examples of irony, but I just really needed to make that joke. Telling you more about Stoddard requires that I first tell you about a guy named Madison Grant, who I was also very unhappy to research. He wrote one of the most famous racist books ever, The Passing of the Great Race. How bad was it? Hitler read it and was a big fan. He actually wrote Grant like a fan letter calling the book his Bible. Imagine knowing you had a major influence on Hitler and being proud of this. According to Grant's book, Western civilization was created by a tall, blonde, warlike people that he called the Nordics. But over time, this powerful race was, quote, mongrelized by mixing with, quote again, inferior races. And a big part of the problem, of course, was the women. I mean, isn't it always? Madison Grant blamed Nordic women for weakening the race because they chose the wrong men to mate with. This feels like the right time to tell you that Grant himself never married. According to Grant, the thing that made this super tall, blonde, white race so superior to other races was something called germplasm. You heard me, germplasm. What? You think that doesn't exist? It's a made-up word? (laughs) No. I would love to tell you what it is, but I feel like I've already wasted too much of my life talking about it, so just trust me when I say it's dumb. Lothard, Lothard, who cares, Stoddard, the guy that Du Bois is about to debate, he read The Passing of the Great Race, and it had a great influence on his own book, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Stoddard learned that the key to success, stop me if you've heard this before, was to convince white folks that there's a race war which they are surely going to lose if they didn't listen to him. The New Yorker called this debate between Du Bois and Stoddard as important as the debates between Lincoln and Douglas or Kennedy and Nixon. But quote, the reason more people don't know about it may be its asymmetry. The other historic matchups featured rivals who disagreed politically but wouldn't have disputed their opponent's right to exist. Stoddard had written that, quote, mulattoes like Du Bois who could not accept their inferior status, were the chief cause of racial unrest in the United States, and he looked forward to their dying out. So this wasn't just a political thing. One of these guys debating thinks that the other shouldn't be allowed to walk the earth. Over 5,000 people packed the hall where the debate was held, and hundreds more stood outside. Du Bois and Stoddard each spoke for 30 minutes. William was 61 years old at the time of this debate. He spoke first, asking the audience, what could you conceive as better 
than a world in which all of the citizens of that world were not only encouraged to cultural equality, but accomplished it. Wouldn't it be the best conceivable sort of world? He pointed out the accomplishments of the black community since emancipation. It was just as smart, accomplished, and cultural as any other group. And the problem is that for some reason, white people had this idea that there's only a finite amount of culture to go around, and the black people had more then the white people would have less. But the whole analogy falls down, he argued, because after all, it is not the things which people have that makes the most part of the real civilization. It is not perhaps a matter of distribution. It is a matter of domination. William also reminded the audience that there's no scientific proof that modern culture came from the Nordics or that Nordic brains are better. But he did say this, Listen, if the people who call themselves Nordics think they're superior and don't want to mingle their blood with other races, cool, that's fine. We don't want you either. Feel free to go somewhere else. I have to read you this direct quote from William Du Bois about this. But this has never been the Nordic program. Their program is the subjection and rulership of the world for the benefit of the Nordics. They have overrun the earth and brought not simply modern civilization and technique, but with it, exploitation, slavery, and degradation to the majority of men. They have been responsible for more intermixture of races than any other people, ancient and modern, and they have inflicted this on helpless, unwilling slaves by force, fraud, and insult. And this is the folk that today has the impudence to turn on the darker races when they demand a share of civilization and cry, you shall not marry our daughters. The blunt, crude reply is, Who in the hell asked to marry your daughters? I feel like if I was William Du Bois in that moment, I would have had to stop right there and just applaud myself. William also pointed out the hypocrisy of a nation that calls itself Christian and then acts anything but Christian-like when it comes to issues of race. Another direct quote. The attacks that white people themselves have made upon their own moral structure are worse for civilization than anything that anybody of Negroes could ever do. And then Stoddard starts talking. He talked about how black people are delusional and segregation was as old as the American colonies and it's fine, everybody. Look, it's been around forever. All the details have been worked out. Black people have adjusted. Why change now? He also blamed the educated black men and women of the North for causing the unrest among the black people in the South. Like, did you have to tell them that they deserve better? We liked it better when they didn't know. Stoddard had this idea called biracialism, where it's like each race should live in its own public sphere, separate but equal. We don't want to mix together, but you all can just go live over here and have all the same things that we have. The best part is he uses the racial systems of the South as some sort of proof that this works. Here's what he says. The more enlightened men of Southern white America are doing their best to see that separation shall not mean discrimination, that if the Negroes have separate schools, they shall be good schools, that if they have separate train accommodations, they shall have good accommodations. And then the audience burst into laughter. That's not a joke for me. That's actually documented in the coverage of this debate. They laughed at him. They knew the situation in the South. They'd ridden on these trains. The idea that this was some sort of ideal setup where races get separate but equal treatment was absurd. And Stoddard stops and he's like, I don't see the joke. And that just made them laugh harder. (laughs) 
They didn't officially name a winner of the debate, but most publications declared William Du Bois the winner with headlines like, Du Bois shatters Stoddard's cultural theories and debate. Thousands jam hall, cheered as he proves race equality. And 5,000 cheer W.E.B. Du Bois laugh at Lothrop Stoddard. People wanted the two men to debate again, and it would have drawn crowds all over the country. William was willing, but Stoddard declined. William lived another 34 years after this, fighting for civil rights the entire time. I have to tell you this little story because it's one of the favorite things I read about him. In 1950, he became the chair of the Peace Information Center, which worked to gather signatures on a petition that would ban nuclear weapons around the world. The U.S. Justice Department said the PIC was acting as an agent of a foreign state, and when the PIC leaders refused to register as such, they were indicted for it. William went to trial in 1951, but the case was dismissed when the defense attorney told the judge that Dr. Albert Einstein has offered to appear as a character witness for Dr. Du Bois. In 1961, William and his wife moved to Ghana, taking up residence there so that he could work on creating a new encyclopedia of the dispersion of African people, the Encyclopedia Africana, and he'd hoped it would bring a sense of unity to the African people even though they had been scattered around the world. In 1963, after the U.S. refused to renew his passport, William became a citizen of Ghana. Sadly, the Encyclopedia Africana was never finished. William died on August 27, 1963, at the age of 95. Just so we're doing the math here, he was 91 when he moved to Ghana to start working on the Encyclopedia Africana. He died almost one year before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, an act that embodied many of the reforms he'd spent his entire life fighting for. At a tribute to Du Bois at Carnegie Hall in 1968, Martin Luther King said the following. One idea he insistently taught was that Black people had been kept in oppression and deprivation by a poisonous fog of lies that depicted them as inferior, born deficient, and deservedly doomed to servitude to the grave. Dr. Du Bois recognized that the keystone in the arc of oppression was the myth of inferiority, and he dedicated his brilliant talents to demolish it. And it all began with a young William Du Bois, raised by a single mother in Massachusetts, told by his family and teachers that he was truly capable of anything. He lived for 95 years, and he just never stopped. There were so many points where he could have chosen to stop. Like, imagine when he took that fellowship and was in Berlin, and people were treating him with respect and like he was equal. He could have stayed there, but he didn't because he knew he had work to do. He's just one person, but he believed he could make a difference. Thank you all so much for being here with me again this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would help me out a lot if you would take the time to leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can check the show notes to see the sources for this episode, as well as where to find us on Instagram and our email. And this brings me to another thing. If you have a story of someone, a famous person in history, a not as well-known person in history, or just someone in your family who has this inspiring story of something really cool they've done, It can be a long story. It can be a short story. I just love these stories. I would really love it if you would send it to me at theordinaryamazingpod at gmail.com. And then join me here in two weeks for an all new story about another person who wasn't afraid to fight back.